Well, we're happy to have Kyle speak to us this morning. Kyle is deep into his second Tim class. Tim stands for Training in Ministry. And I would encourage you to, on the, on the desk in the office, there is a syllabus for the class that he's involved in. And he tells us a little bit about what's going on, the papers he's writing, the books he's reading, and so on. And I read through that syllabus and see all that goes on, that all that's expected of him in that class. And I look at that, and I lay it back down, and I say, Boy, I'm glad that's not me. <laughs> I don't think I could make it through all that. So, <laughs> I'm glad you're doing it, though. <laughs> so, I'm glad you got the, the uh, brain power to carry it. So anyway, we're glad to have him speak to us this morning. I'd like to pray with him before he begins. Father, thank you for Kyle. Thank you for his willingness to share with us. And right now I just pray that your message would come through his words and that what he has to say to us would be challenging, would be uplifting, and would be healing. Just ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. Hope everyone is doing well. Hope you've enjoyed the last couple of days and the weather it brought. Seems like it's going to be changing soon. To begin with, I think what we're going to do today is just dive right in. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to begin with some self-examination, if you will. We're going to ask a few questions and have you answer them within yourselves about your heart and about the way you come before God in repentance and the state of mind that you're in. So we're going to start with these questions. First question, are you saddened by your sins? Are you saddened by your sins? When you, whenever you defile yourself outwardly, when you express anger, when you do sh- something that does not properly display the love of Christ to someone, and you have to repent, does it sadden you? Second question, Do you repent because you have to or because you want to? Are you repenting because you have to and it's your duty and it's part of being a Christian and it's some type of form of self-preservation or out of some type of fear that you'll be punished if you don't? Or are you repenting because it truly breaks your heart that you have grieved him and you desire restoration with him? And the third question Do you recognize the aspects of your nature or your heart that defile you outwardly? And do you recognize the aspects of your nature and your heart that defile you outwardly? Are you willing to sacrifice your pride and in humility admit your faults and take them before Christ? So those are what we'll begin with today. Now, I know that when you read your bulletin, you see Mark 7, verses 20 and 23, and that is going to be the crux of what we look at. But I think to properly understand those verses, we need to look at the first 19 in chapter 7. We need to have a proper understanding of what is going on, because this chapter shows a very pivotal change that's occurring within the Jewish community. And, of course, it just so happens that Christ is present. So we'll look at the first 19 verses here. If you will, turn to Mark chapter 7. We'll begin with verse 1. Mark 7, verse 1. The 
Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or his mother, Whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also that you not understand that what goes ever that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Now, when you read the Gospel of Mark. One of the first things you may notice is in comparison to the other Gospels, it's much shorter. It's much more concise. And the reason for that is because Mark focuses mostly on the actions of Christ. Some theologians actually refer to it as the Gospel of Actions. So it's all these actions Christ did, and then he dies, rises again, and then we are called to continue on the good work. And in this chapter... You see three actions being done by Christ. Just in the little portion we've read so far, you see him confronting Pharisees. You see him teaching the multitude and you see him instructing his disciples. And this is very important. But what is going on in Jewish history in this moment is also being brought to the forefront for us to see. So for the first time, well, it's actually been building for a while, but traditions are beginning to be held in the same respect as the laws of God. And in the first century A.D., when the time of Christ was on the earth, there begins to be this book that they begin to develop within the Jewish community called the Halakha. And that is H-A-L-A-K-H-A. If you want to look it up later, it's the Halakha. And what this is, is this is a book that is comprised of the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, 
the mitzvahs, rabbinical laws, traditions, and eventually in the year 350, the Talmud would be added to it as well. So you now go from the Pentateuch being what they used, the laws of Moses and the books of the Bible, to a book that is comprised of the laws of God and traditions being held equally within the community. And this is why the Pharisees came up to the disciples and addressed the fact that they were not washing their hands because of the esteemed traditions were being held in. So the two examples you see of traditions that Christ is confronting here is the washing of hands and Corbin. So what the washing of hands was, was before you could eat bread, you had to wash your hands in a certain way. So you would take a jar, fill it with water, stick it in front of you. You would pick the jar up with your right hand, transfer it to your left. You would then pour water on your right hand twice, put the jar back in your right hand, pour water on your left hand twice, put the jar down, hold your hand up so that the water ran past your wrist. You would then say a blessing over the bread. Then you would dry your hands off, go to the table, pick the bread up like you were going to eat it. All ten of your fingers had to touch the bread. And then you would say the blessing again. And if you did this and the room was totally silent and the only words coming out were the blessing said, then you could eat. If not, you had to start all over if a noise was made. And that is why they were what they were addressing. And in that very moment, that is when Christ turns around in verse six and confronts them. You are the hypocrites. You are the people that Isaiah was talking about, the people that honor me with their lips. But your heart is far away from me. Because in vain you worship me, teaching as doctrines of God the precepts of men. You're taking traditions and teaching them as if they're equally important with the law. And the second thing that he confronts them about is Corbin. A Corbin is kind of a unique word, and rightfully so, because the only place in the Bible that the word Corbin appears is in chapter 7, verse 11. But to understand what it is, you have to understand the definition of it. So essentially what Corbin means is devoted to God as a gift or set apart for God's use. So it's something that you would donate to the temple. So if you were rich and you had land, you would give it to the temple and they would use it to raise animals for sacrifices or to have festivals on. But most of the time you were donating gold, silver and jewelry to the temple to be put into the sacred treasury. So it was something that was being set aside for God's use. However, the Pharisees were taking this and they were contorting it and using it for their own gain. And one of the way they were doing it was by twisting the law that God gave the Israelites in Exodus 20:12, honor your father and your mother. Now the way this worked back in ancient Israel was that as your parents aged, you and your siblings would save money And it would be in this fund that you would use to care for them. Any expenses they had as they got older, any help they need, you would use it for them. But the Pharisees were saying, well, no, use it for Corbin. If you take this money, you give it to the temple and you declare Corbin that then absolves you of your responsibility to care for your parents. If your parents reach out to you and say that they need help, you then declare Corbin and you don't have to take care of them anymore. And that is what Christ is saying. You're taking the laws of God and you're contorting them and using them for your own gain. And as you can imagine, that did not make him very popular with the Pharisees as he was saying that and calling them out. And then in verse 15, 
This is the first time in the chapter that he states that what comes out of a man is what defiles him because it is what excuse me, it is what shows the heart of man. And what Jesus is focusing on in this moment is he is focusing on an inward or a spiritual faith that is evidenced by the actions and the things that we say. He is telling them that your heart is always on display. Now, he's not sitting here saying that you can sit and you can watch all these things or, you know, listen to death metal or whatever. And as long as you don't act on it, you're fine. What he's saying is that the externals that you're performing, they don't do anything to save you if the heart you're doing them with is not there. And so the the theologian Halford Luckhock, he addresses this and he states that true religion or Christianity is a true walk with God that is free of externals. If you rely on being good, following protocol, acting from fear and self-preservation or ritual, then you keep God on the external, and that's all your relationship ever involves. If sacrifice is empty, then so is your repentance. And that is what Christ was trying to teach them. It's always about the inward walk with him and the desires of the heart. So now, if you will, let's go to Mark 7. We're probably still there. And we'll read the verses that are in the bulletin, 20 through 23. Mark 7, verse 20. And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within... Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And look at that list that Jesus states is on the heart of every man. Anger, pride, lust, evil desires, Thefts in some way, shape, or form, every single one of us has an understanding, even if it's on the rudimentary level, of these sins and how they're always there. And so you sit and you see the heart of man, and you see that we constantly defile ourselves outward, and you may think to yourself, how how can we ever do this? How can we ever truly repent with a heart of love? And the perfect example of this, in my mind, is King David. Think about all the sins that David did, and yet think about how we remember him, how we look at him within the Psalms. But yet in this one event, David and Bathsheba, we truly see David commit every single thing that Christ lists here. So just for a review of the story of David and Bathsheba, David was king of Israel. He walks out on a roof one day, looks over and sees a woman bathing Bathsheba. So he calls for his servants to get her. To bring her into his chamber, he has relations with her, and then she goes back home. A little while later, she sends his way and states that she is pregnant. And her husband was not aware of this, Uriah, because he was on the front lines fighting a battle for Israel. So David calls him back from the front lines, welcomes him to his chamber, tells him good job, says, hey, go home and be with your wife. But instead of going home, Uriah sleeps on the doorstep of the castle. So David notices this and he brings him back and says, why are you not going home? 
And what was going on in that day was there is an honor code that most soldiers would abide by to where if you were called home, but your master and your fellow soldiers were still out on the front line in tents, then you would still sleep in a tent to remember them and to honor them, the sacrifice that they were still making. So Uriah tells David, I'm not going home because I can't dishonor them. So David, realizing this, says, okay. The next day he sends Uriah back to the front lines with a note to give to the leader Joab, stating, send this man to the front line to the busiest part so and withdraw the troops so that he dies. And when this happened and Uriah was killed, they sent a letter back to David telling him it was so. And then David took Bathsheba to be his wife. Now, in this one event, think about every single thing. Go through that list in 21 and 22. Fornication. He forced Bathsheba to sleep with him. Theft. He took what was not his. Murder. He sent Uriah to the front lines to die. Coveting and wickedness. He performed a wicked act because he coveted another man's wife. Deceit. He tried to use Uriah to cover his sin. Sensuality and envy, those are obvious, and pride, he used his position of power to get what he wanted. Literally, every single one of these things was displayed. And yet, when you read 1 Samuel 13 and Psalm 89, we see God referring to David as a man after God's own heart. Think about all this for a second and ask yourself, how is David... This man that committed so many atrocities known as a man after God's own heart. And the Pharisees, men who were absolutely obsessed with keeping the laws of God, considered hypocrites. Because on paper, it looks like those should be switched, shouldn't it? But there's a reason for this. From the beginning, our relationship with God has never been about what we do and what we don't do. It's always been about our hearts and our walk with him. From the beginning, after God created man, he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve and communed with them. And after sin had entered the world, we see Cain and Abel's sacrifice. And yet Cain's sacrifice was rejected by God. Why? Because of the heart he brought the sacrifice before him with. He didn't bring the first fruits. He simply brought something to him because he had to. <clears throat> and then you go on down the list in the Old Testament till you get to 1 Samuel 15 and you see King Saul. Now Saul defeats the Amalekites just as God commanded, but he didn't do it in the way he commanded. He didn't follow all of God's instructions. And so he goes to Samuel and they try to celebrate the victory, but Samuel tells Saul, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of lambs. Obedience is always what God has desired. Walking with us is always what God has desired. The more we obey, the less we sacrifice, the less we repent, the more time we spend in his presence, the more our heart is changed and conformed to desire communion with him. No less repentance is needed. And so returning back to David, turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And if you've never read this psalm, it's quite powerful. What this is, is this is the psalm that David wrote 
after the incident with Bathsheba. This is David's repentance to the Lord for his sin. Now, what we're going to do together is we're going to read verses 10 through 13. But there's a few verses that stick out and have key phrases or sayings in them. The first one is in verse four. David states against you and you only have I sinned. That is the state that David's heart was in. Even though he had wronged Bathsheba and Uriah and had led the children of Israel wrong, in his heart he had sinned against God and God only. In verse 6, you see David say, Behold, you desire the truth and the innermost being. You desire the truth and the innermost being. And in verse 7, he states, Cleanse me and I will be clean. Cleanse me and I will be clean. And so we drop down to verse 10 in Psalm 51. And we'll read 10 through 13. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted to you. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a spirit within me. That is what makes David different than the Pharisees. The state of his heart when he was coming before him in repentance. And you see that even further in verse 16 when David states that you do not delight in a sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it and you are not pleased with burnt offering. Because obedience was not being done. And as Christ says, what comes out of the man displays the heart. Think about what you're seeing coming out of David's mouth in this moment of repentance. There is sorrow. There is sadness. There is grief. And there is a desire for restoration. A desire for the relationship to turn back to what it was. And when you read through this, it almost makes us ask of ourselves, how is our heart when we come before the Lord in repentance? How are we when we come before him? Is what's coming out of our mouth to him in those moments a sacrifice of pride coming in humility? Is it a sweet savor unto him? Because there's two types of repentance, isn't there? There's generic and there's sincere, generic and sincere. So we'll look at those real quick in the aspects of lust and anger. Generic. Lord, forgive me for my lustful thoughts. Sincere. Lord, forgive me for the way I sometimes look at Janelle at work and the thoughts that go through my head. Please forgive me for them before I know they're wrong. Lord, forgive me for my lustful thoughts. Lord, forgive me for how excited I get when Thomas comes in to pay his bill. I'm married and I love my husband, but something about talking to him excites me. Remove that from me and forgive me, please. Anger. Lord, forgive me for the way I run my mouth off sometimes. Lord, forgive me for the way that I desired to belittle my brother in that moment. The thoughts of physically going after him, the thoughts of berating him, the thoughts of totally demeaning him and making him feel inferior in that moment and taking power on myself. 
Please forgive me for that. And when you look at that, those are two very different types of repentance. They're not the same. And that is what Christ is getting at. The pure heart. And in conclusion, true sacrifice is one's repentance made from a place of sorrow with a desire to be restored to the proper relationship with God. Repentance in which the words coming from the mouth are a true display of the love within the heart, the love of the only true sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Only the repentance of a heart through the true sacrifice of Christ can restore a man's heart to a place of communion with God. The true heart cleansing sacrifice is Christ. And so we end today the same way that we begin. Thinking about these verses, what's coming out of the mouth, displaying the heart. Are you saddened by your sins? Do you repent because you have to or because you want to? Do you recognize the aspects of your nature or your heart that defile you outwardly? And are you regenerated by the blood of Christ with a heart of love through forgiveness that allows you to express your love to Christ in repentance with a heart that desires restoration? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all you've given us. We thank you for your sacrifice. We can come to the Father through you. We pray, Lord, that your sacrifice constantly weighs on us. We pray that we continually have a regenerated heart, that we put pride aside, that we come and repent in total humility, and that our repentance is not only a desire for restoration with our brothers, but more importantly, a desire of restoration with you. I pray that what comes out of us is a constant reminder of the state of our heart, that we remember that we are sinners, but we also rejoice in what you've done for us. We thank you for all things. Amen.